another episode. We're live. Is this 40? This is 40. Holy moly. We should have watched the movie This is 40. <laughs> For the 40th episode? For the 40th episode. That would have been such a good idea. And then we could... Like we could make a joke that Paul Rudd's hemorrhoid that he experiences in that film is a legitimate disability. The number of times I've had to ask an attendant to look at some vulnerable part of my body to take a picture to send to a doctor to diagnose, like that's kind of the same thing he's going through in that scene. That is totally the same thing. Also, I didn't know that that was a regular thing for you. And I, I feel well, like I mean, you're it's not like it's not like it happens on a weekly basis, <laughs> but I feel like. If it happens more than three times in my life, it's a thing. Just like every uh, once a week, like the same attendant has to take a picture of your left butt cheek or something. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, hey, it's you. Good thing it's you because I need that picture again. (laughs) Meanwhile, you just like, like taking tushy selfies. You know, I was actually thinking we should probably try harder to get tushy as a sponsor because... Hemorrhoids are a very real problem when you have the number of times I've had to be like, you're wiping too hard to someone and afterwards be like, hoping they didn't cause a fissure. Are you serious? Yeah. So like I'm thinking, and also it's just, as we've talked about, it's a part of my life I would be very happy removing. Wait, you can get a fissure from somebody wiping too hard? For sure. Especially when, yeah, no, like, I don't want to get into details about, like, the experience of a a hard wiper. Yeah, like, we haven't even introduced ourselves or, like, (laughs) you know, we just went right into it. It's my fault. I definitely directed you. Hi, my name is Anthony, and (laughs) I have a risk of hemorrhoids. (laughs) My name is Anthony. Kershaw seems like the kind of brand that would be on board with selling or advertising bidets to disabled people as a market that they maybe have untapped. Okay, um, I think we're thinking of two different companies. Okay, so when I say Toshi, yeah, I'm thinking of a like easy to install bidet. Is that really? That's what that is. Yeah, it's like a you get like a seat attachment. And it squirts water into your butthole, so you don't have to. Wipe I know what it. a bidet is. Okay, but maybe maybe our listeners don't know for some strange reason. Here's my question: Why like why aren't bidets like more normcore? Why why aren't they the standard? I think they're becoming more normcore now because yeah. of companies like Tushy. Because of your fissure, I mean, this is like free advertising for them. Yeah, we I should stop talking about Tushy until we should really. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, what here's a question How come you don't have one? I don't know, but I should probably think about it because Honestly, if you think about it, like you could probably sorry, I just cut you off. Um, but you could probably operate it like voice activate it with Alexa. <laughs> Alexa, squirt my butthole. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Squirting your butthole. <laughs> like, like that's not even a joke. You can literally make <laughs> I have a command to turn my fan on called blow me. And that's always fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh that's true. I should get one. Maybe I'm just holding out for that sponsorship deal, you know. What happens when your parents visit you and they want to turn the fan on? Well, so you can also say turn on the fan. 
imagine like to my mom like you just have to say blow me <laughs> <laughs> your mother would not even like i think she would have fun with it yeah i think she'd be like oh okay oh wow i don't know if she would think of it as the double entendre that it is because i remember one time we were watching like dr oz or ellen or one of those dumb shows yeah and they said something about dildos and my mom was like what's a dildo oh and i said it's a city in newfoundland because it is but i didn't want to explain and you had that answer just prepared in case your mother ever asked you about sex toys no i looked it up i was like i don't know let me google it (laughs) let me google So I googled dildo, and it came up with a city, and I was like, that's the answer she's looking for. (laughs) So, no, uh, but then another, in that same conversation, they were also talking about anal sex. We're really hitting it off for the 40th episode. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) Let's blame Judd Apatow, or no, let's blame Paul Rudd's hemorrhoid. That's what started this. Yeah. (laughs) By the way. Can I just, I love that movie. I feel like that's like the most We really should have watched that movie for this. We really should have. Maybe we'll watch it for 41. Mm, I almost regret, even though the movie we are going to cover is amazing, I regret not thinking of that before right now. We could just say that we're both computer scientists and we started counting from zero and this is actually episode 39. Yeah, I don't think that's going to fly. <laughs> No one will find that funny. Fuck my life. It would have been a stretch to find any real disability comment, but like it would have been a fun, fun break from what we've been doing. What if, what if the palatable fear of aging actually has so many parallels with our lives that we end up really enjoying it from that vantage? Well, I do. I mean, that's one of my favorite movies, but you're right. I mean, I essentially feel like my body is so much older than my brain. Oh, yeah. Because I'm like, like the other day I went out in the cold. It was like 12 degrees. Yeah. And reasonably, I never do that. For probably good reason. Yeah, you had other things motivating you for that, I'm sure. For good reason, I decided to not go, or uh, I decided to go out. But Uh usually I don't. And as soon as I got outside, it was just a constant loop in the back of my mind being like you'll be okay your hands aren't going to fall off oh you can just ask someone for help like just Mm -hmm. cycling through that and then also like oh i like because my body almost feels like it's aging faster than my mind which i I think everyone probably goes through yeah i don't think my 85 year old dad is like i feel 85 in my mind you know what i mean yeah, I, I often think about how like unneurotic my dad is. Even when my dad was having heart troubles a couple of years ago, like it really genuinely seemed like he wasn't too stressed out about it. Like his mind wasn't overly occupied by it. Yeah, and I know that it was because I know that he felt vulnerable, and there was a stretch where he got a lot quieter, and he was just like nervous about what needed to be done in order for him to be better. And I think like he had the procedure where they put a, like a wire through a vein in your arm and then they unblock the, the arteries of your heart. I forget what that's called. Like a stent. Yeah. Yeah. A stent. Yeah. So he had that done and then 
like he continued to have problems. And so they finally decided to fly him out and open him up and check it out. And it turns out he needed a quadruple bypass, Dang. which is super scary for a 78 year old man. But he was having um, trouble breathing and like palpitations and a whole bunch of other symptoms. And so he was vulnerable, but like, for what he was going through, he was remarkably stoic. Yeah. Like he was like a protagonist in an anti-Western from the late sixties where he would just be, he would, instead of cracking as many jokes, he would just be clearing his throat like awkwardly every once in a while at the dinner table, like something was up, but not really like he was still being my dad. So that actually kind of scares me because that, that must be like, some kind of generational thing. I don't know if it is. I think it's, it could just be that you've been around the block so many times yeah. that you're just like, I know how to deal with this kind of stuff. I've been here before. This is just maybe a little bit more extreme of a version of events, but you can put it all together over all of your life's experiences and be calm. But I also do think it's like a, maybe not a generational thing, but, just like a personality thing. It's just like you, it's that thing where you, um, as a child, you don't often see your parents afraid. They're, like they don't, they don't like let you see that side of them. Like that was one aspect of my mom's mastectomy. How the fuck did I end up talking about this deep and troubling stuff? We were talking about hemorrhoids a second ago. <laughs> but you're talking about your hands freezing when you're outside and how much that makes you scared and i can totally relate to that in my own way but i've just like my parents have had like health crises over the last couple of years they're they're good now they're in good health now and they're happy and like humming along and whatnot but the last couple of years were pretty hard like before you and i started talking again and started the podcast because of all this stress about my parents health and then like other things going on anyway my mom was the same way. Like she, like throughout her her can her breast cancer, like she also sort of seemed very like unfettered by it. And the only time that that I ever saw her have like a moment of weakness was right after her surgery. She like cried because she like made it through. And I know, like I've never seen her cry. Maybe like once or twice. Usually it's tears of joy from laughing. You think she's gonna listen to this? Maybe I, she might not, unless one of our mutual friends tells her that I talked about her on this episode in a positive light. Um, anyway, like I've never seen her cry unless she's like laughing really hard at Faulty Towers or, or some like British sitcom. And so after her surgery, she like come out and like me, it's like Sarah and I are with her and she like did well and they they got it all and so she's happy but she's also under the influence of the of the anesthetic still so maybe that was like her moment of weakness or something and she cried but i probably will never forget that because like you i don't know man you know you're, you never see your parents vulnerable <laughs> sorry sorry I, ju- I just got stuck on that so but like <laughs> by comparison like us like when we feel vulnerable we we talk about it, right? We try to get humor out of it. I, they probably talk about it to each other. It probably, yeah. But it's like, I'm sure it's very stilted conversation. Yeah. It might be a generational thing. Yeah. 
I don't know. Because you got to think, like, my parents are, like, my parents are basically, you know, Mad Men? You know, Pete's character from Mad Men? Yeah. That's my parents. Like, that's the age range. Right. Wait, because he's, like, 20 at the start of the series, and it starts in, like, 19. Okay, so they're, like, five years younger than Pete. But they had you later than that. They had me in their 40s. Yeah. Like, mid-40s. Yeah. That's why I have CP. Oh, just kidding. Jesus. <laughs> well, hard to bring it back. Oh, to your hand. I'm sorry. I I totally went No, not hand. to my hand, but just like, you know, I've done enough crying over the past two days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That movie, the movie we watched for today's episode is a fucking doozy and a half. Yeah, I made the mistake of watching it again, but wait. anyway. Why? Okay, can I ask, like, I don't, why did you watch it twice? We'll talk about it later. Can I can I uh, share with you a minor uh, life observation that I've made in the past week since we spoke? Okay. I bought a new phone a couple of weeks ago. Okay. And congratulations, that's actually a big deal for you because <laughs> yeah. you are such a penny pincher. It's obnoxious. It drives me crazy. It's pretty bad. It's only at the expense of me. Like I won't. I won't. No, it's not. How <laughs> I had to buy you this mic arm. You did. That's true. Because you were just holding your microphone in front of you with your spastic hand, like a red popsicle. I just needed. I just. What if I wanted to engage my hand? It was twenty dollars. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. You I mean, still don't have speakers on your computer. That's a. I. I that's true. I don't. Oh my God, yeah. Franco's gonna love you for saying these things. Yeah. My so friend, my my elevator. Friend. Your penny pinchingness has been the bane of our friendship on multiple times no it hasn't been the it bane has, it has yeah i would not if, it, you, if like you... the only reason i know your mailing address is because i'm like fine i'll just buy it for you <laughs> so you bought a new phone i bought After a new phone a year of deliberating about this phone i did we've have been to talking deliberate. about this phone forever to the point where i think i went through two new phones and I was going to mail you my old one. And then you're like, I'll just buy one. But you get phones from work. So that doesn't count. Yeah. Well, no, I only have one. This is my first free phone. First free phone? Yeah. The one before is it, that. I, I is it feel, is it all, this, all the more sweeter because it was free? It's pretty sweet to say that, that I got a free phone. Yeah. It's super ironic to me that like, as you get more successful, like, professionally or whatever that you're more likely to get big ticket items for free like as perks of your work yeah i it's decent the number of in-kind payments i received Mm -hmm. anyway so you got a new phone i got a new phone and first and foremost i will say first and foremost i will say okay you sent me the phone you were gonna buy and you were like is this one okay it was eight dollars wasn't it eight? You were like, "Here's an eight dollar phone. It it comes out of a bubblegum machine." <laughs> it was like a. It wasn't eight dollars. It, it was like one of those rugged phones that come all like already in the case that are supposed to be like. Yeah, it looks like a phone that like like a contractor would get yeah. as a work phone, yeah. just so that he doesn't drop it from the second floor of a house building project. Yeah, it's like the kind of phone you get if you think you might need to concuss a bear. Yeah. Yeah, by throwing it at the bear. And it was 
disgusting. It was. It wasn't disgusting. Spec wise, it it was a it was a mid tier uh, Android device. Mm. Anyhow, T E A R maybe <laughs> tier. <laughs> Good one. Um. So here's one thing that's frustrating about phones is that they're all perfect complements for each other nowadays. Like the smartphone experience has sort of homogenized over the past ten years. So when you get a new device. You're simply like uh, compensating for a hardware that has gotten tired from overuse. Like your right. previous hardware doesn't actually become obsolete because of it, like hardware innovation, but more so just the wear and tear of um, of uh, planned obsolescence. Well, I think it's both. Like the newer hardware is snappier and can handle like larger, more complex pieces of software. I suppose, yeah, it can like it, it can have processors that does it, that achieve like complex multi-threading, or yeah. like it has screens that are that have a higher refresh rate, or like haptic feedback that feels more as though you are pressing a button as opposed to tapping a screen. I do think a lot of the features that are upsold on phones nowadays are fairly useless, mm-hmm. like a hundred and twenty hertz phone refresh rate is like. You're not going to notice that extra 60 hertz. No, not unless you start gaming on your phone, which is an unusual behavior at this point. Yeah. But um, anyway, so yeah, like phones have gone the way of vehicles, which is that like the way they are marketed is sort of veers away from, you know, the core features that you actually care about with the phone. And they've done that for long enough now that you actually start to think that you care about the megapixels in your camera or like the FOV on it or whatever else nonsense. Yeah. But um, one thing I did sort of notice is that because I've been coping with an inferior, like broken phone for the past, like uh, 18 months longer than I should have. Yeah. I stopped engaging with the phone um, because it would take too long to, to send a message or complete a task, mm. or I wouldn't use like voice activation on it if I was trying to operate it remotely. Like little accessibility things I just stopped doing because the phone couldn't perform anymore, like my original model. Yeah. And then when I got this new device, I had to I have to continually remind myself that it's now okay to use my messenger app because I have enough RAM on the device or like I can actually run this tool on it simultaneously with another one and I'm good to go. Do you think that it's almost better when you had an older phone because it helped you unplug? Um, I, I suppose you could make that argument, but that's not the headspace that I'm in, like in this current conversation. I was just going to say that, like, I think that, um, and we've talked about this before, but this is another good example of it. I think that when you have a disability, you train yourself to tolerate in- inferior tools because like growing up, you had an imperfect wheelchair that wasn't properly calibrated to your back or you had um, you had a K walker that wasn't like set exactly proportional to your height or you, you had to basically deal with um, in- inferior solutions to common everyday problems. Yeah. So you just learn to cope with the bullshit um, and I, I think I was doing that with my old phone. Like I was just tolerating it because I'm used to tolerating like discomfort. It's also kind of like the boiling frog, right? Where you're, yeah, you're slowly getting more and more 
accustomed to its shittiness that you kind of forget that when you and then you get a new phone and it's just miles ahead of where you were. Mm-hmm. I remember having that exact same thing with two phones ago. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, I was basically neglecting myself for yeah a year. Yeah. And it's like, um, I wish there was a way to jolt myself out of that particular kind of comfort. Like the comfort that is actually an incredible inconvenience that I've just grown numb to as though it's white noise in my life. Yeah. And it's like, it's like you almost have to survey yourself every once in a while and ask like, is this the best solution? And strangely enough, like after a lifetime of living with petty annoyances as a disabled person, I haven't really trained myself to ask those questions. And I wish that I, I wish there was such thing as a fucking disabled life coach. I really wish there was that such thing. Like, I don't want like a crippled Joe Rogan or something. Like, I don't, I don't want like a, I don't want like a, like a crippled Oprah. I don't like, I mean, you could argue that Oprah is better than Rogan. Or You want like an intimate person. You can actually almost like a counselor, but like they aren't just talking about your emotional problems, but just like how you can gain more success out of your tangible physical life as well. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I, have we ever talked about how the, like, like therapy is fantastic, Yeah, of but, but, but the one annoying thing about it sometimes is that you want to talk about disability with a therapist, Yeah, but you're inevitably going to get your wires crossed or like, you know, they're not going to be able to entirely understand what you're going through. Yeah. And, and then they start depending on how ableist they are, they might start projecting their idea of the struggles that you face onto you and then not helping you as much as you should. I've been in that situation before where like, I will say to them, these are the things I'm struggling with, you know, like I'm having a really hard time adapting to my physical changes and my hand is getting weaker and my jaw is getting tighter, blah, blah, blah. And then the counselor will just be like, yeah, that does sound hard. Um, but then that's all. It's not really offer. They're not offering like, but you can do these things. They're just like, wow, good for you for being where you are. And it's like, uh, thank you, I guess. But that's, I'm looking for like criticism or like helpful, constructive feedback. It depends what sort of therapy also they subscribe to because they may not be in the business at all, regardless of your issues they may not be in the business of prescribing solutions but of rather like just listening yeah or helping you tend to board healthier thought patterns about your problems right well i i've been feeling the same thing that you're feeling with your phone with my wheelchair because i as we've talked about i'm like slowly entering the process of getting a new wheelchair Mm -hmm. and it's um, it's more and more becoming more and more apparent to me that this new wheelchair is going to be such a major shift all at once that it's probably going to be hard for my body to physically adapt to the new change mm. to the point where I've actually started talking to the people involved about ways that we can sort of slowly transition 
to a new chair because I don't think that I'll be able to physically adjust to the jolt of a new, like a full new chair with new everything. That's pretty interesting. Is there any way you could elaborate on that for the uninitiated? So, yeah, for those who don't know, like my chair is pretty complex. I think your chair was what, like a dozen thousand dollars? Yeah, only a dozen. Yeah, which is a lot of money. That's a car. Yeah, a shit car. My yeah, it's a shit car. Or but, or like or the Apple iPhone 14 apparently. Yeah. <laughs> like with the extra display that it comes with. Yeah. And my chair, I don't want to brag, but my chair was $28,000. Oh my god, Tony. I know. You don't even have like flashy rims on that shit. No, so most of it is just like I have a custom headrest, custom backrest. Um, I have like a mount for my phone. I have, you know, fancy seat cushion. And then I also can tilt my chair. My foot plates can go up and down. I can recline my chair, like lie it flat. Mm-hmm. I can elevate the chair so I'm closer to eye level with people. I have lights on my chair. Basically, like, all the bells and whistles. You have a bidet on there, too, in case of emergencies, right? There is a bidet, yeah. You can push a button, and then the bottom of the chair opens up, Mm -hmm. and then a toilet forms. Right, right, right. And then I just take a dump. That would be sick. (laughs) I don't have that yet, but now I'm just fantasizing about that. Yeah, I can see you looking up and to the left. So, yeah, with the new chair, realistically, the biggest thing is the new chair... First of all, the chair I have now, it's discontinued. I won't be able to get parts for this chair in the next 20 months. So I need to get a new chair. Otherwise, if something happens to this one, I can't fix it. Does that happen a lot where um, specific models of chairs and their peripheral accessories um, become totally obsolete or off the market within five years? Well, the funding pattern for Ontario is basically every five years you're eligible for a new chair. And so just like any company, basically, there's planned obsolescence around that. So Uh. my chair, the next version of the chair that I will get is essentially the same. Everything is just a little bit better. It's just like getting a new phone. That's really interesting that the the, innovations in the field correspond heavily to like government funding patterns well think about it because if you're a chair manufacturer yeah you don't really people can't afford to spend twenty eight thousand dollars every five years on chairs but also supply and demand dictates that in order for them to make chairs that can be this good Uh uh-huh they have to jack up the price because they're not going to be able to pump out as many of them in that period of time. Yeah, because they inevitably do not have the demand for those chairs because there's not enough disabled people. Right. And also, the government has financial limits on how much they're willing to spend and what they're willing to spend money on. So an example of that is my backrest, which this backrest I have now is like custom molded to my back super comfortable it's made of like a super super soft memory foam it's really nice but 
the company that made it is basically what happens is the agency that provides government funding says, we don't want to spend this much money anymore on custom backrests. We will now spend, let's say, 70% of that or something. Uh, and that's our limit. So if you want a custom backrest, you have to get one that costs under this threshold of money. And the companies are like, well, we can't make a profit at that rate. So we can't anymore work with the funding agencies for chairs. And the sales company of the chair, like of the wheelchair, is then legally not allowed to work with those agencies because they're priced out too high now. So basically here where I live, there's one company that will make a seat for me mm-hmm. that is still within the range, the budget range of the government, mm-hmm. but they don't make the quality that I've come to know and love. Oh, no. Right. And I also asked, like, okay, well, can I just use the X amount of money that the government will pay and put it towards this other company that will be better and I'll top up the price. You'll pay the difference. I'll pay the difference. But they won't let me do that either. Why? Because the sales agency is, like I said, not allowed to work with the company that is overpriced. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they're, um, my hands are tied. My back is against not the nice phone. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm having a difficult realization where I'm like, Okay, well then, what I'll have to do is basically, because I don't want to go through this whole process where I get a new chair, I get a new backrest, I transfer over the headrest, I get like all the positioning of the driving controls the way I want them, blah, blah, blah. And because of my disability, like, I'm very much the princess and the P. Like, if it's a little bit off, I just can't use it. Like, I notice every little change. Yeah, and you're not a fastidious asshole. You're just like, it's just super necessary for you to be able to function that the chair have very specific configurations. And it's like what my body's now used to. So my muscles are like, have sort of developed to work within that range. So like, for example, my joystick is a lot looser than it was when I got it because I've been using it. And uh-huh. the springs have weakened, uh-huh. as they do. And now if I were to get a new joystick, it would be too tight for me to push it. Oh, no. Yeah. So it's a whole... I have to think about all of these things in a new chair. Oh, my God. So basically, I'm like, okay, well, can we just get the new chair, treat it as like a new base, and then yeah. basically move everything that I have now over to the new chair? Hopefully, oh. I won't even notice a difference. So you're going to have to make a Frankenstein chair? Well, basically, I'm going to have to lie in bed for a day while they transfer everything from my old chair to my new chair, hoping that everything is exactly where it was on the old chair. Can you live stream that day and just spend it like being super indulgent? (laughs) Like live stream me in bed? Yeah. (laughs) I would like to see that, like all comfy and shit. Like playing Rocket League, recline? In my bed, I don't. I just watch TV. 
Is that creepy? I would like to see you in bed, Tony. <laughs> Get in line. <laughs> it's really stupid that, like, in the feud between the people that make custom peripherals for chairs and government funding, like, the only people that lose are, are the end user, are you. It's me, but it's also, like, the company that does a good job loses a bit too, right? Yeah. Because they're doing it to, to do a good job and to, you know, their product performs and as a result, their prices are higher, but that's because they make a good product that we want. Right. Yeah, so I had this like pretty tough conversation a couple of weeks ago where I was like, okay, like what are my options? And they basically said, this is your option. And I'm like, I've worked at that company before. I didn't have good results. And they're like, yeah, that's kind of expected. Oh my God. What company were they? Like Fisher Price? It was Fisher Price, yeah. <laughs> it was Fisher Price. Yeah. So then my new chair is going to be one of those bouncy baskets <laughs> on wheels. Right, right. And I push one button and I go forward and I push another button and the horn goes off, but it comes with an easy bake oven. So. <laughs> Imagine it was like <laughs> President's Choice backrest <laughs> <laughs> or whatever company it is that makes like scooters for uh, fat customers in Minnesota. The reason Toys R Us went out of sale is because they decided to start selling those, you know, those little Jeeps that you can get. Little Jeeps. Yeah, like the little battery-operated Jeeps that you sit in when you're three years old. Okay, okay. Yeah, those are now wheelchairs. Oh, that's what you have to settle for. Mm -hmm. Can you at least get, like, a Jurassic Park model? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Do you ever think about what color wheelchair you're going to get? What color? Yeah. I, I like thinking about color, yeah. Why? So you you don't just get the black one every time? No, I like blue. Interesting. I thought long and hard about which color to get, and I settled on black again. Why? I just because, like, <laughs> I was kind of of two minds. One is, this is like an accessory, right? It like it's cool. indulgent to ask for color? No, it would be cool to have a color that makes it pop and makes it, like, unique and mine. Mm -hmm. Part of me was like, what's the practicality of that if I need a replacement shroud is it going to take longer for them to get the blue one because they only usually get black ones? But how often do you actually run into such a problem? Right. So that's like minimal. But then the other thing was, I kind of don't want my wheelchair to draw more attention away from me. So you're being, you're selfish? Yeah. <laughs> you're being vain? Like people are looking at my wheels. I'm like, eyes up here. <laughs> Or you, you spend the day, like, properly styling your hair? Yeah, and then they're just staring at my white wheelchair. Okay. So I think I'm going to get black. I haven't fully decided. White looks kind of cool, like, looks like a Tesla or something. Yeah. But it's going to be dirty in three seconds. Okay. I'm probably yeah. going to get black. I don't know. I'm not very sensible with these kinds of things. Style. I don't have any style. I've had black wheelchairs for years. Uh -huh. My first wheelchair was purple. Was that, a, a, did you choose that purple? I was obsessed with Barney. 
I'm not even joking. <laughs> That's awesome. I was like, I want purple like Barney. I would have gotten purple for the Donatello factor. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like the the Ninja Turtle, not the philosopher. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a question. So as part of your like power chair Frankenstein migration project, yeah. That means that you're going to migrate over your your backrest. And your joystick, right? Yeah. I just thought it would be fun to, you know, meet somebody uh, who who would help you loosen a new joystick. <laughs> <laughs> I did. You know, that's funny. I know what you're getting at, and I'm not going to indulge you. <laughs> but uh, have you ever been to Ikea? And they have, like, one of those a glass box with a chair in it and a machine just like pushing up and down on the chair over and over again to demonstrate how many times you can sit in a chair before it wears out. Like the resilience of the, of the pleather. Yeah. I've never seen a machine like this. That sounds really fun though. You, you, what what do you do? You flick a switch and it just beats the shit out of the chair. It's, it's just going 24 seven. It's like, if the lights are on Ikea, this chair is getting pummeled. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's ridiculous yeah but it's cool it's like a resilience test or whatever and i've thought about making a machine that does that to my joystick while i sleep <laughs> so it's like wiggles it back and forth all night and then i wake up in the morning i'm like oh this is better don't make a machine just find a person to wiggle it tony you think i'm gonna find a person that just wiggles my joystick and stuff I do think that there's plenty of people willing to wiggle your joystick. I think we're having two different conversations. <laughs> I think you need to have more confidence, Tony. <laughs> Seeking joystick wiggler. <laughs> yeah, well, if someone out there listening is uh, willing to wiggle my joystick. <laughs> yeah, you're like, to turn on the fan, you just have to say, wiggle the joystick. <laughs> just, uh... Send a message in our Instagram DMs, but <laughs> make sure to specify it's for me so Jamie doesn't respond. Yeah, I might get a little too excited. <laughs> I had another story I wanted to tell, but first, what's going on with you? You got anything? Uh, not a whole lot lately. You know, I'm getting ready, geared up to go back to work, which is making me sad. Oh, yeah, that's happening soon, eh? Yeah. When is it happening? Um, The end of the month. Jeez, that's real soon. Yeah. Right as winter hits too. Yeah. Brutal. And I just, I really, uh, I, I joked that it's going to be on the day of the first snowfall in Thunder Bay. Yeah. It's going to be like, hey, here's the least practical time for you to be outside as compared to the past eight months of your life. Now you go back to work. Are they going to give you an easier time on inconvenient days where you can just work from home like three days a week or something they haven't given me a direct answer about that which is very frustrating that seems like a pretty the opposite of progressive yeah that seems like some something i could take elsewhere if i were stubborn enough you really could and i honestly see some value in you doing that because it's not only just frustrating like to get out but it's the time like getting up earlier you have to take a accessible bus which is the worst experience not to mention that the bulk of the of the stress of of getting me in a commuting mode is actually on my parents more than me 
Right. Who are a lot older. And as we've already mentioned, it just seems, it seems impractical. For sure. Like now, now that we've proven that it's not necessary, why do we suddenly have to pretend that it's necessary? That's exactly. the thing that frustrates me. And I know that there are people who are in lines of work where they have to go in. And I hope that those people enjoy going into the office and don't feel as I do that it's a gross inconvenience and totally tedious. But honestly, like we've, we've seen the light and to revert back and to try to rationalize it, I think is super silly. So I'm hoping that it actually incentivizes me to be open-minded about my employment prospects. Yeah, as I think you should, like, I, I don't know, especially nowadays, disability awareness is a growing topic mm-hmm. and forcing the inaccessibility of commuting on you. Mm-hmm. At least they should be able to give you the option, like, come in once or twice a week or something. You know? mm-hmm. Like every Friday or some kind of quota. You have to come in for specific department meetings. Every Wednesday. Yeah, or every day where we have a potluck or any day that somebody brings donuts. A lot of companies are fully remote now and they're saving so much money on rent and they're just funneling that into people improving their work-life balance and improving their home office spaces. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am blessed or I was blessed even before the pandemic because my commute has always been under eight minutes, which is absurd if you want to work in the tech sector in a large urban city center, I suppose. But I think that it's crazy that like, you know, hour long commutes in a big city were normalized. But eight minutes for you is eight minutes of actually driving versus how much time we're waiting for that bus to get there. Oh, well, sometimes they're on their own schedule and they fuck right off. Exactly. Because even, even, services designed to help disabled people sort of make the assumption that we all have loose schedules. Oh yeah. Like they don't all the time. They don't think there's any urgency in our lives. And in fact, that's actually quite an assumption across the board for able-bodied people. If I have one gripe with you motherfuckers, you always assume we're not busy and it really annoys me sometimes. Yeah. People will be like, why don't you text me back? Your phone's right there. (laughs) Excuse me. It is right there. But, my eyes might not be on it. Yeah. Somebody's, somebody might be wiggling my joystick, okay? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the dream, right? <laughs> so speaking of this, this maybe is a bad segue, but as you know, I have a bunch of attendants. And they they come in multiple times a day, either on a schedule or when I ask them to come in to mm-hmm. help me with various things. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they have keys to my apartment. They do have keys. Because they need to. They need to be able to come in. And they abuse those keys, don't they? Yeah, they definitely sometimes do. Sometimes yeah. I'll be in the middle of a meeting and they'll come in and ask me to borrow a cup or something. <laughs> and it's like, excuse me? Yeah. This is an extension of your office space. No shit. Or they'll come in and be like, hey, can I bum off your Wi-Fi? Yeah. And you're like, dude. Yeah, you have to change the password. So the attendants, and I live in an apartment building where there are like a dozen clients. Uh-huh. And the attendants sometimes, very rarely, but it happens, will lose a key ring. And basically when that happens, 
this ring of keys that can get you into basically all the vulnerable people in the building has disappeared into the ether. Mm -hmm. And this happened maybe a couple months ago. So I got an email saying, hey, just so you know, a key ring went missing, basically meaning meaning like the, the, the risk is that if a stranger were to find this key ring and put two and two together, maybe they would be able to access my apartment. There are a few steps in there that make it less likely that it's it's a huge risk, but it's a risk nonetheless. So when I found that out, they were like, do you want us to change your locks? And I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. Better to be safe, right? And they were betting on you saying no. They were for sure betting on me saying no. So I said yes, and then basically no response. Then fast forward. <laughs> They're like, no, 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 we'll just wait him out. <laughs> right. Yeah. He'll forget he's disabled. So fast forward to like a week ago, and I get an email from the same person saying, hey, so I know you mentioned to me that you wanted us to change your locks. Just so you know, the keys were never found, but it's been a couple months now. So we just assume that nothing has happened. So we don't think that there's much of a risk. Would you still like us to change your lock or do you want us to just leave it? That logic is so fucked up. I know. Imagine it's like you, you lose a gun and yeah. you're like, so nobody's found the gun, but also nobody's been shot yet. So I don't think that there's going to be a murder. Yeah, effectively, the gun doesn't exist anymore. We don't need to talk about this. There really there's no point in ever having discussed it. In fact, we regret ever telling you the gun went missing. <laughs> so she was like, do you still want us to change your locks? But the email, I wish I could just like read you the email verbatim. Because it basically was just her trying to say, you don't need us to change the locks anymore. It's like Obviously, I just responded, absolutely. <laughs> still change the locks. Like, why wasn't this done two months ago? Right. It's outrageous. And then, then they're going to freaking um, ghost you for another two weeks. And no, like, so they changed the locks this morning. Oh, thank God. Yeah. So I was kind of waiting to see how the whole thing played out. But I did get an email today saying like, that I was the, la- the second last person whose locks they were changing. So there were a few people ahead of me. But a few means they didn't do everyone's. Right. So that means a bunch of people, either they just didn't ask them or they got away with, yeah, okay, I guess it's fine. And you know why they don't want to, right? Because it's it's expensive to change locks. Yep. They have to change them for like six or more key rings. Plus they have to give me two new sets of keys. Then they have to, you know, they, they probably have eight keys at least. Per lock. So the, don't lose the keys, asshole. Right. I mean, you should have responded. Would you have wanted your locks changed? The fact that there was another email and the logic of the email was just, so nothing has happened in the past couple of months and the keys were never found. So I don't really see there being much of a risk here. If you really want, we'll change your locks, but do you want us to? 
What? She's suddenly like a professional, like a uh, key actuary person. Imagine I was just like, you know what? You're right. That's okay. <laughs> we'll leave it. We'll leave it. Yeah. Like I, outrageous. Anyway, just a little bit of insight into the level of accountability uh-huh. that an agency like that can take. Oh, yeah. And this is months later that they just got changed. I bet you, like, at some point, they're going to try to charge you for the lock replacement. Oh, that reminds me of when I moved into this apartment. I used to live across the hall. Then I upgraded to a bigger apartment. So I moved in here. Mm-hmm. And my locks obviously changed because my apartment changed. So I told them, hey, just so you know, I'm moving to this apartment. Um, so, you know, you're going to need to get some new locks. Or, or sorry, some new keys mm-hmm. so that you can get into my new apartment. And they were like, okay, yeah. Can you please get those keys and give us eight copies of them? And I was like, no, I'll get you one key. And you can make seven copies because that seems fair, right? I'll give you a key to my apartment and then you can duplicate it. But it, there was this was like a two-week conversation or back and forth where I was like, I'm not paying for you to get locker keys for every single key ring that you have. Like that's That should be on you. Like, what if you had 24 key rings? You want me to buy all 24 locker keys? Isn't there a softer solution to this? Like, why do they need, because all of the disabled apartments have proxy readers. So I understand that there could be some liability if the power goes out, then they can't use proxy card cards to open the door potentially. Yeah. In some rare cases, but could they not just walk around like with an array of proxy cards and, and go it that route? It doesn't even have to be an array because proxy cards can be programmed for so multiple locations. Yeah. Yeah. So why can't they just all, excuse me, all have proxy readers? And then when one of them gets lost, you just decommission that proxy reader. That's an excellent question. And honestly, I think it's just that the agency is, I, I might be wrong. There's maybe something I'm overlooking, but this is an agency that still uses a cell phone from the 90s. It's a flip phone. And when you call for help, sometimes it's just not working and you get a voicemail and then you have to call again and leave a message saying, hey, I shit myself. I'm going (laughs) to need help. (laughs) And then they'll pick it up like 10 minutes later or longer. And so I just don't think that they're super up to date in their thinking and reasoning. That doesn't make any sense. Because think of how much money they would have saved on locks and keys after losing this key ring if they just switched over to a proxy policy. Yeah, they already. I have a, I have a proxy card to get into my own apartment. Yeah. And so if they, and you and I have lived in other places where that was the solution. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot more sense. The only liability there or annoyance there is if you live beside the office. And there's constantly attendants walking by your place. They will just open the door willy-nilly, unintentionally. And there is that, like, in the way this building is designed. I live at the end of the hall, but there's my apartment on one side of the building and then another apartment on the other side. So 
It's like a cul-de-sac, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And there's a good chance my apartment door would get opened accidentally a lot. But in that case, you could just, well, I don't know, we don't have to talk about this for the rest of the podcast, but... Well, you can get proxy readers that have a very small range. So, like, I have a card with a battery in it. Yeah. It, it gives you, like, feet worth of range. Yeah. But you can get those little key ring, like, toony size uh, proxy readers. Yeah, where you have to thrust at it practically for anything to happen. Yeah, you have to, like, yeah. rub it a little bit. Yeah, you get, yeah, over the pants. I don't know what's wrong with me today. We're going joysticks. Yep. Should we pivot? We could pivot. That's so annoying, though, one more time, that we just did like five minutes of thinking to solve what, what is probably a big headache for most of the people at your care organization. That's the reason they didn't want to change it is because of the headache. Right, exactly. Yeah. So just use your use other technologies at your disposure and also some common sense. <laughs> what the fuck? Outrageous. Outrageous. Yeah, I don't know. It uh, it didn't get me fired up as much as it maybe could have, just because, again, the way that their locked system works, it, somebody would have had to really know the ins and outs of the building and how it worked in order to abuse that keyring if they found it. But just on principle, it shouldn't even be a question. It should be, hey, sorry about this. A keyring went missing. We're going to have to change your locks. Also, you have a bunch of neighbors who are at risk. And so you don't know. Right. You don't know what could happen. And it's, yeah, like there, it's a mixed income building. Mm-hmm. And there are people from all walks of life. I had a neighbor a couple months ago who was like selling drugs out of his apartment and drilling into his own apartment sometimes. So, you know, if he just accidentally grabbed his key ring. I don't know. Like, yeah, there, there are. It was way too nonchalant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, figures. Yeah. But in better news... What movie did we watch, Tony? Yeah, we watched... I'm going to say it. This might be my favorite movie we watched to date, besides Crip Camp, which, again, is like a documentary and not even... In, in the same league, but we watched CODA, which even just the title, uh, CODA is an acronym for children of deaf adults, but also is a music reference, right? Like sheet music. The CODA is that symbol that means the end of the song. Really? Yeah. It's a double entendre? Yeah, and it works perfectly for this movie. I did not know that. Yeah. I feel stupid. I just knew it because I got kicked out of playing saxophone and had to learn how to reach music. Right. Okay. Anyway, why don't you tell me and all of our listeners what CODA is about? I'm going to try to make eye contact with you the whole time so as not to lose myself in the synopsis. Okay. So, Anthony, would you agree that CODA is a coming-of-age film about a young girl uh, in her late teens, uh, just a year shy of college, yeah, who lives with a, a family member or w- uh, who lives with a family of deaf people. Yeah, so it's a mother, father, and older brother. Yeah, 
they are her immediate family, all blood relatives, and they are deaf. Yeah. But she is not. She is of the hearing variety. And so the movie is basically, it's like a year in the life of this young woman who works very closely with her immediate family in their uh, fishing business. Uh, they like fish off the coast uh, for, I don't, I don't know, like that whole side of the movie is a little bit vague to me, but what side of the movie, like the father's entrepreneurial aspect and basically how they make an income. They're fishermen. Yeah. They're fishermen. Yeah. Yeah. So they fish. (laughs) Right. Good point. So it's not that complicated. (laughs) Um, so yeah, the movie is about Ruby, this young woman, um, discovering that she has a deep passion for singing and she she um, encounters a teacher at her high school who offers uh, vocal electives. Bernardo. Bernardo. Bernardo is, is almost one of those stereotypical like adult influencer types in these films. The fairy god singer. Yeah, the fairy god singer or think like uh, Jane Jonah Jameson uh, in Whiplash. Yeah. Motivating his students via negative reinforcement toward a kind of vocal perfectionism. Breathe. But actually, this movie has its heart in the right place at all times, which is why it's overwhelmingly charming. And so you know immediately that that, uh, Ruby's vocal coach is not an asshole. He's very supportive and very funny, actually. Yeah. Um, And so as Ruby starts to develop this passion for singing, she sort of feels as though maybe she has a bit of a double life because obviously, you know, becoming, discovering a side of yourself that excludes the rest of your immediate family can be quite a a thing. Well, also, she's sort of pulled between two worlds because her biological family needs her because she acts as their interpreter and their gateway into the hearing world. Yes. And her her dynamics with her parents are super fascinating and like yeah. probably the main reason to really watch this film. I don't know. To me, there were a lot of reasons to watch this film. Mm-hmm. You and I both have some like adjacent experience with deafness, right? We do, yeah. My mom... My mom is partially deaf, and my sister dated a deaf guy who was really awesome. I, my family, my foster parents, as one of their sons, so like my foster brother, I guess, very confusing for me at the time because I wasn't able, I was told by my biological parents not to uh, refer to them as siblings or whatever. So it's, it's always like a tricky thing to describe my relationship. But anyway, they worked at and even lived at the Ontario Camp of the Deaf. Oh. And so I grew up going to this camp all the time. The Camp of the Deaf? Yeah. Dang. Not as a camper, but just like to visit my family. And so I'd be on the campground because they lived on site. Mm -hmm. And um, I would get to, you know, explore the grounds and then obviously meet people and see people who are deaf and see them interact um i remember like that was the first time i re- i saw that when they applaud they just do jazz hands and i loved that 
What is it? What like? Put your hand up in the air and like wiggle your wrists back and forth. Oh yeah. Okay. So it's like a. That's applause for. Yeah, it's person. a visual. There's a visual spectacle element to it. Right, and then what I realized. Uh, so like actually, that part of my family grew up talking in sign language a lot, um, just because they learned it from working there, but also they used it as almost like a teaching tool for their children Mm. because you could like yell at your kids in sign language at the dinner table without causing a scene. Right. Which was really cool. You could abide by certain tenets of politeness while still getting your point across. Yeah. And also you can, you know, like it's kind of nice to discipline your child without involving everyone around you because that can sometimes bring on more shame and embarrassment for the child when they maybe don't deserve it plus like um signing is essentially another language right and that's what i loved about this movie is especially the father Mm -hmm. uh, he's so expressive in his signing that i knew even though we you, you do have like subtitles of what the signing is saying uh-huh. you can tell from my limited experience of asl but even just sort of intuitively you can uh-huh. see that you're missing so much context of what he's actually saying versus what the captions are saying and he's just so expressive there were a few scenes like that where i weren't we weren't able to really clip anything for this movie because all of the best parts of the movie were exchanged, at least mostly, in ASL. So it wouldn't really translate to a podcast. That must have been a very deliberate thing. For sure. Because this movie is all about communication. Yeah. Um, and, and, and gaps in communication between daughter and parents. And deaf parents realizing that their ambidextrous child is leaving the nest and kind of coping with that reality as anyone would. But they have a unique set of problems and a unique set of characteristics or a lifestyle that makes this leaving of the nest very complicated. And like, I think the movie's like willingness to explore that, like the kind of codependency between Ruby and her parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And to also show effectively like a a majority disabled family like living a normal domestic life uh very happily and functionally and being multifaceted and interesting fun to watch like fundamentally flawed goofy fully dimensional human beings and even just like when they were trying to demonstrate they being the filmmakers were trying to demonstrate like the oppression that a deaf community might face. Mm. They did it in a really realistic and grounded way for the setting and their characters. It, it was They never really broke any of the, the disbelief. It uh-huh. never felt like they were zooming out too far to make a point. It really felt like it was just a slice of life, a very realistic portrait of what a community of or a family of deaf people in small town Massachusetts would have gone through. Yeah. 
Um, and it does all of this while also being a coming of age story for Ruby. Yeah. So throughout the film, Ruby strikes up a low key romance with a fellow classmate who's also into singing. There are several scenes of her doing her job with her father, like catching fish and preparing them and like all kinds of manual labor. Like you get a sense for just how much her family life is kind of all consuming, how she has difficulty um, basically managing the hearing world and her family because the two are somewhat compartmentalized, which you can, we can obviously relate to. I like how they demonstrate that right out of the gate where they're at the doctor's office Mm -hmm. and Ruby is in the room because she has to be, because she's the interpreter. And she's interpreting between the doctor and the parents who are there describing their itchy genitals. Yeah, they is that a dermatological problem that refers to skin, right? They they just have it's not like a full on STD. They just have a rash. Yeah, jock itch. Jock itch. Yeah, and it's because they it's because of their trade. The fact that they're always damp. Yeah, and then they haven't they have an active sex life because they're human beings. Yeah, she's always wiggling a joystick. Right. Well, she's as as you would hope that they do. Yeah. Yeah. I like how like the doctors like just try to stay away from sex for two weeks. Yeah. And then Ruby's like. Sorry, guys. He said you can't have sex ever again. Yeah, that joke is brilliant. Yeah, like like that joke justifies the price of admission right then and there. But then when she's like, "Okay, fine, I relent," he said two weeks. Even yeah. the way she delivers that is perfect. It's, just, it's perfect. It's so good. Like, I I I feel like this could come off as condescending because I don't see. I suppose I spent a lot of time with my sister's boyfriend at the time, but this was like almost 10 years ago. And I don't have a person uh, who like, I don't have a deaf person in my immediate social circle, Yeah, same. but like the deaf characters in this film, when they speak, like as a hearing audience member, you almost feel like you're at a, you're at a minor disadvantage because you have to focus on the subtitles before you, before you can, because you can't look at them and look at the subtitles at the same time. Like it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. So you miss you miss the body language, and uh, you you essentially kind of miss part of the performance. Yeah, I noticed that because I was the first time I watched it with you, I was kind of trying to read the subtitles as quickly as possible, so then I could go back, jump up, and like look at the actual hand gestures and body language. Right. But then I watched it again today just because I loved the movie so much. And it was like therapy in a way. Because this movie really cut me in a good way. See, that's such an interesting thing to me because I always associate like language with phonetics. Like language and sound are intrinsically interlinked. And when you you learn how to read like... For us. Yeah. For... for, Sorry. Yeah. For the hearing world, when you learn to read, you learn to sound words out and you learn how they feel like on your tongue before you actually sometimes even fully understand the meaning or the application. Yeah. And so to, to learn to speak primarily with your, with your body, with, with gestures, like is obviously like a natural extension of body language, but it's also just like a completely different paradigm. It's almost like charades. 
Yeah. So like like to be literary, like as a as a as a deaf person must mean something adjacent or in addition to what it means for the hearing world. Like what it, what is a what is an ASL poem? It's not it's not right. how the words fit together in terms of their sound and their position on the page, but rather like their their meaning, but also how they look to perform, maybe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like what like is is deaf wordplay like the charades of it? I had a friend who is um very French. Uh-huh. And like French is her first language, English is her second by a, a bit. She's definitely better at English than I am at French mm-hmm. by a long shot. But there was always a bit of a gap when we we're chatting because mm-hmm. there are just some words she maybe doesn't know in English or I don't know in French. And so there's a barrier there. And she said this offhanded comment to me once that stuck with me forever. And I remember I was trying to talk to her in French and I didn't say it like the correct way, but she was still able to understand what I was saying. And Mm -hmm. she's like, that's fine. Communication is just as like, if you get your point across, you're communicating. Yeah. And this movie gets to that in a couple really significant ways. The first one. Hold on. Can we say spoiler alert first? Because there, there are, there's two moments in this movie that got me so good. I literally had to turn off my mic so as not to fucking cry in your ears. <laughs> oh, I was straight. I didn't even bother turning off my mic. Yeah, I was like sniffling and I couldn't hear you, but you were totally silent. Like you didn't even go for any jokes, which is a good indication that you're emotionally overwhelmed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I was straight up bawling and I didn't even know I could cry because (laughs) no, because I got laser eye surgery. Okay. And a side effect of that is basically my eyes are forever dry. Fuck off. No, it's true. I have to put eye drops in multiple times a day. Otherwise, they go red and my eyes get blurry. Because oh I don't produce tears anymore. So if you need a good cry, like you, you don't get any of the waterworks from it? I just, sometimes I'll, like my eyes will almost glass over. But realistically, it just looks like they're normally saturated. That's gross. I don't like <laughs> that. I'm not, I'm not getting LASIK surgery because of that. It's still worth it for sure. And they do tell you. <laughs> In advance, that's a common side effect. It'd be funny if like, if like Chad's or like toxic men went and got LASIK so they they could come out of it and be like, I can't even cry, bruh. I never (laughs) cried and I can't cry. Never cried in my life. I'm not built to cry. It makes me very good at staring contests. (laughs) But yeah, so I was like full on crying, but it was therapy. It was so therapeutic that I decided to put myself through it again today. Oh, that's why you did it. Yeah, it was cathartic. It was just like the the movie was... Anyway, what I want to say is they really do touch on how deafness or ASL can really unlock this other means of communicating. The first time is when Bernardo was like, tell me how it feels when you're singing. And she can't say it so she starts to like sign it and she basically just does this gesture sort of 
like mime presentation mm-hmm. where it basically demonstrates how it felt or how it feels to sing. And it was so much more powerful than words could have been. Yeah, it really was. Like, we're not placating the film. Basically, Bernardo is trying to get uh, Ruby out of her shell. And she's having difficulty, like, breathing properly so that she can project her voice. So he's trying to remind her why she's there in the first place. And you, like, in the audience, you're thinking that she's going to find the perfect words at some point, and it's going to be this, like, this monologue where she explains, you know, why she loves singing. And then all of a sudden she resorts to signing. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like a plot twist because it's, first of all, it kind of defies your expectations. And you might think that it would be corny, but the the lead actress is so obviously good at ASL that it just, it just yeah. ends up feeling incredibly inspired and authentic. And you're like, holy fuck, this movie just like exceeded the sum of its parts. Like this is this is really awesome. And that was still like in the first act. Yeah. She it's like the gesture that she does though, it, it seems like she's taking <clears throat> like a bunch of like knotted intestines and like unwinding them and just like basically like de-stressing or something. Yeah. I, I can't I can't do the visualization justice with words, but you you just have to take. I think that's the point. Yeah. It's profoundly, it's, it's a profound moment. Like I've never, I can honestly say I've never quite experienced something like that before. And so it's definitely a a proper fucking movie moment. Yeah. This movie from start to finish, like, even though I knew every story beat the second time I watched it, yeah. they all hit the same way. Yeah. Can I ask you a question before we get into the second uh, wonderful scene in this movie that makes the whole thing worth it? Yeah. Um, did you see any parallels between this film and The Little Mermaid? I wasn't thinking about that at all. Um, I mean, I don't, this this movie seemed so much deeper and grounded in reality and profound i don't i I don't mean to to draw the comparison in in a way to diminish it i just want to bring it back to other things that we've watched and i wonder if it was a legitimate influence because you because like if you think of the hearing world as like where the people are then like ruby is feeling pressure to join to like independently or autonomously join the hearing world in order to pursue her passion, which requires her hearing ability. Mm-hmm. And at one point her mother thinks that her singing is an act of rebellion. She says, mm-hmm. if I were blind, would you want to be a painter? So there's some like, there's some like able tension going on there um, that like Ruby has to negotiate with her parents, but it's not, it's not like the key conflict of the film. Mm-hmm. I, I, w- I would say again, it's more just her, uh, growing and trying to you, you know i don't know if there's a if there's i think i see what you're saying like there is a bit of should i leave this world that i'm accustomed to and also the family makes their makes their means like on the sea <laughs> so and she part of what incentivizes incentivizes ruby is this young boy who 
is also like in their singing class. And so there's a bunch of... She looks like Eric from Little Mermaid. Yeah, like point, pulling her in in uh, different directions, like some somewhat sort of away from her family, but not yeah. quite. I mean, I see what you're saying. I think it's a bit of a stretch because the story points that do draw the parallel are unique to this story. The movie is so much more of just an emotional journey than anything. The plot doesn't really drive the movie nearly as much as just the emotion throughout. Well, it's, it's Ruby trying to explain to her parents why she loves to sing and she, she can't do it with her voice. Yeah. So she has to do it in other ways. And it's, it's bridging that gap. And like, I'm getting choked up just trying to fucking uh, describe it because I actually think that the movie does succeed in arguing that Ruby is able to communicate with her parents by the end of the movie. A hundred percent. That's such a huge accomplishment. Like it's. There are parts of this movie that like I want to talk about, but I also don't want to talk about because like, like you said, people should honestly not listen to this episode Uh before they've watched the movie because it's it's one of those movies you kind of have to go on the journey with it yeah well that's why i said spoiler alert because yeah exactly so there can can i get my complaints about the movie out of the way i don't want to you have complaints complain about it to her i have minor complaints let me just uh tune out for a sec (laughs) so one of my complaints is that the um, romance in the film did so I'm thinking of Lady Bird, like a Greta Gerwig film. Greta Gerwig's really good at telling sm- smaller stories within a lar- larger plot and having those smaller stories pay off in ways that are proportional to the main arc. And I don't think this movie is good at paying off its smaller stories. So, for example, the um, relationship at the heart of it doesn't really go anywhere. It just sort of fizzles out and like we're not really supposed to care the other thing is, um, I realize that the codependence between Ruby and her parents is like part of the main conflict of the film. Like in order for her to leave the nest, like she can no longer be their translator. And so she has to decouple herself from them and they have to embrace a reality without her, which means going out into the hearing world and finding another translator and, you know, figuring out how to move forward. But I, I think and it's aimed to show like deaf characters who are like autonomous human beings. You know, like maybe it's a bad thing that her parents are so reliant upon her. And I'm not sure that it's entirely realistic that they would be. Yeah. I was also wondering, like, what did the family do before she was born? Exactly. What, what was their contingency plan? And you do get the sense that there is the weight of the world on Ruby's shoulders. And that's yeah. prob- that's problematic. But I, it felt realistic. Like the characters, like the the parents and the brother, they all seemed like there was a bit of a space between them emotionally. Yeah, and not not in the way that they were distanced because they were a very close family, but just yeah. that like you could see that if Ruby stayed on this fishing boat for the rest of her life, she might not be unlocking her potential. Yeah, but. Should her potential necessarily be joining the hearing world or like, you know, leaving the sea? I think that's more of a byproduct 
than a driving motivation. Yeah. I don't think she was like, I want to sing because my parents can't hear me. I think it was just, I like music and Uh I've learned to love singing. Because she didn't even really want necessarily to be a singer. Like when Bernardo was like, what do you want to do next year? She was like, I don't really know. I'll probably stick around. I don't really have plans. And he's like, you should go to music school. Yeah. And it's to the movie's credit that I didn't even really see that coming. Like, you know, it sort of suggests that it's going to be one of these coming of age things where a child realizes that they are gifted and that they are not just a muggle. Yeah. But I didn't really see that because I was so involved in the in the smaller moments between the family and how funny and interesting they are as characters. So I was wondering about that that codependency element and I was sort of wishing that there were a few scenes where maybe Ruby's parents did some parenting. There is a scene where they where Ruby brings home the boy that she's practicing a a duet with and her parents are ha- having sex. They don't hear them come into the house. So they like start boning. And then there's a hilarious scene where she both lectures her parents for acting like children, supposedly. And then the father turns the table and starts asking Ruby's new boyfriend, like what his intentions are. And that's the scene where he basically like tells Ruby's new boyfriend that he's got to make sure to wear a condom yeah. is so like, is so genuinely fucking funny like so and you can tell that this is where deaf people have an edge in communication (laughs) yeah for sure like you could never be this funny with your words no for sure it's it's like you immediately want him on your team for charades yeah you know there are other ways he could say this even using asl yeah, you know that he's being a cheeky fuck and that yeah. he's trying to provoke. Exactly. You know that he's choosing the funniest possible way to mime, like, the deed, essentially. Just like, to sort of, like, embarrass his daughter. Yeah, and it's perfect. And at the end of the scene, he exchanges a knowing glance with his wife. Like, yeah, we totally embarrassed her. Yeah. That was wonderful. And it's 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 perfect, man. Like, there's a lot of chemistry between the immediate family members in this movie and that's just lightning in a bottle the casting was amazing Mm -hmm. the girl that plays ruby uh, i checked and like learned asl for the role learned how to sing for the role no and learned how to fish for the role she was born in 2002 and she's amazing all three of those things yeah the acting seemed so flawless that like i i honestly thought that before i checked that she was an actual child of a deaf parent or something or like partially deaf or something yeah yeah it was very very good the mom is played by a fairly famous deaf actress who's been in a bunch of like shows um maybe famously the seinfeld lip reader episode she's the lip reader I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, you're not a big Seinfeld fan, though, right? No, I don't really like Jerry. Yeah. I feel like we're going to lose fans. Well, not that I don't like Jerry. It's just that, no, I'm not getting into it. I'm not getting into it. (laughs) Yeah, we'll save it for another episode. Yeah. We'll cover disability Seinfeld one day. (laughs) Sure. 
No, I get what you're saying. He's anyway. Yeah, that's not the brother. I don't really know him. I looked him up and not really familiar with like his work, but he was also just gold. Uh-huh. Everyone was so good in this movie. They were good, yeah. But it's it it's more like the, the acting sells the movie, but the writing and the, the direction, the scene, the sorry, the setting, like everything comes together so perfectly. It really does. Yeah, there's a few emotional payoffs in this movie. I haven't experienced something similar since like Whiplash or I don't know, some movies that have actual sentimental value to me and maybe aren't quite rational. I didn't feel much with Whiplash. Really? No. At the end of at the end like with his drum solo when he's like sweating and partially bleeding and he's like making eye contact with J. Jonah Jameson and it's just a big old fuck you. Oh my god, man. It's like- a different payoff for me. That's more just like Look, I'm powering through it. But this payoff was like, look, I'm unlocking what was already inside me. In like, yeah. a, I don't know. This one to me was like so much more pure and pulling on my heartstrings. Yeah. Like you can see the moment when Ruby connects with her parents, like whether it's one on one with her father. Okay. So there's an, there's like kind of an anti climax in this movie. Like I, I, I joked to Tony um, at the end of the movie or close to the end when everyone gathers at a pageant where Ruby and her uh, boyfriend ha- have to sing their duet in front of the community or whatever. Yeah. And I joke like, how, like how many fucking wheelie movies have to end in a fucking pageant? <laughs> yeah. And, but then it, there's kind of a twist because. But in, in defense, even if that is where it ended, like a coming of age story generally happens over the course of a school year. Yeah. And how many school years end in a pageant? I've never participated in a pageant in my life. Really? Never. I did a pageant once a year. Weirdo. Yeah, but <laughs> I was a I was a big drama geek. I had some good ones. I'll show you a picture of me in a dress at the last one. Please? I will. Can that be the picture that we post along with the with the Insta thing <laughs> for this episode? We'll see. Okay. Anyway. The pageant scene in this movie is actually like a kind of a, what do you call it? It's a red herring, I guess, because the minute that uh, Ruby starts singing, the the movie actually switches uh, points of view to her father. And he, of course, can't really hear anything. He's, He's there purely to support her. And so he's like trying to stay connected with the moment, but he's got really nothing to hold on to. He's really bored. He, he just gets bored. He starts fidgeting with the, the buttons on his shirt and looking at his wife for like additional context or like some indication of appreciation for what's occurring. And so you, you he's on an island in a sea of hearing people, including his daughter, and you feel for him. And you're like, well, that was a strange like non-payoff. Like, what the fuck is going on? And then, you know, everyone gets home from the pageant and Ruby has a private moment with her father where she's like, do you want to know <laughs> what the song was about? And so she starts to sing it for him like louder. And then well, he like, he actually asks her to do that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, he does. Yeah. In an attempt to understand. Yeah. And then so he ends up putting his hands like on her, her neck to like feel the, the vibration of her vocal cords. And it's like, 
It sounds awkward, maybe. I don't think it was awkward. I was crying. I was too, man. I got so choked up. I can't even fucking describe it without getting like CP voice. Because it it was so real. You could tell in that moment that this is a man who understands being deaf because he is deaf. And how many times do we have to explain the value of authentic casting in movies like this? And that is it. You could never act your way through that scene if you were pretending to be deaf. Yeah. So, okay. So it wasn't movie magic. It was just authenticity. Yeah. I just want to say, like, there are many scenes before this where arguably a cheesier director would have cut the audio to be like, let's show them what it would be like to experience this as a deaf person. But it was always shot through the lens of Ruby. And it was through her perspective. So even when... Except for at the pageant, though. Exactly. So up until that point, there's even scenes where Ruby's not involved, like the scene where the brother gets in a fight at the bar. Uh And it's still sort of through the lens of the hearing world. Yeah. Which I really appreciated because that made the scene at the pageant where it was like 30 seconds of silence because you're then empathizing with the perspective of the the dad. Yeah. You really feel compassion for the parents because you realize they're not getting anything out of this. Right. Except supporting their daughter. And it's supposed to be such a big moment, like a like a seminal life moment for for parents. And you can even see that Ruby is on stage singing, sort of having this realization that, yeah. oh, this is the thing I love doing the most. I've spent half my energy on it. Every every waking moment outside of my family obligations mm-hmm. towards preparing to this for this pageant. And my parents, are, my family is here to support me and they can't really get anything tangible out of it. And there's something super raw about that. I really, um, it really starts to get to the struggle that I imagine is real for a child of deaf adults mm-hmm. where you, you're sort of like between two worlds. Maybe to her credit, it makes her more of like a, a latchkey kid and she grows up a bit more mature and independent than she may otherwise have uh, because, you know, she's, they actually mentioned that in the movie, right? Like she was never a baby. She's basically been forced to grow up so quickly uh-huh. to fill this role in the family. Yeah, I just, it's one of those movies where I feel like I don't want to talk too much about it I just want people to go watch it because it's just so good. You really should just watch it. Yeah, there's just small decisions that suggest a level of insight that exceed the proceedings. There's nothing extraneous in this movie. Like, again, I watched it a second time today and I knew everything that was going to happen. Yeah. It flows so well. It's acted so well. It's shot so well. It's, it, I honestly think this is my favorite movie that we've watched to date. Wow. Yeah. That's huge. My only gripe 
my only gripe is that there are a couple like minor plot developments that make the parents look more vulnerable than they should be. Like what? Well, like when they're getting audited by the um, whatever fishing agency or whatever. Right. And um, Ruby's not there because she's rehearsing. And so the... Uh, yeah, that's a little coincidental, I guess. Yeah, not coincidental. It's just that you think like these people have been fishermen generationally for a hundred years and it's their lifeblood and they haven't solved the problem of Ruby being off for the day. It doesn't quite make sense. Well, that's sort of the internal strife of the movie though. I I get that, but I think like, I think maybe that was a a gap in the film's sort of logic, or I maybe just want a scene where it's not always Ruby cleaning up after her, her parents. Like they should come in and, help her out of some kind of jam just so that the like the parent child dynamics are less askew i agree that that would be a healthier family dynamic but i think that the point of the movie was sort of emphasizing how think about it if ruby's parents were disabled though and she was just constantly attending to them they are no but i'm saying like if they were in a wheelchair if ruby's parents were you and I, and she's always like, fuck, I always have to feed you and blah, blah, blah. And there was like no scene in the movie where we actually parent her in return or like, you know, be her guardian. I I totally get what you're saying because, you know, you don't want to represent disabled parents as being reliant on your children. But at the same time, I think that if this movie was about parents with a physical disability it could be the same struggle of like the yeah. children are are going to i'm not just, saying that it's an invalid like dynamic i'm just saying that a bit of balance would have been nice but i think the point of the movie was ruby basically fighting for that balance yeah yeah and true that was sort of the struggle of the movie was hey guys i'm doing a lot this is exhausting. I want to do this thing for me now. So, but at, at that, it risks being not enough about disability. Because again, because Ruby is this character between two worlds in order not to lose the able-bodied or hearing audience. And so it's really, really important that her parents be competent in some very obvious ways. And they are loving parents. They do, they, are, they do want to protect her and guide her and support her, you know, as evidenced by their, their uh, embarrassing conversation with the boyfriend. But there needed to be at least one or two more scenes in which they actually parent, is all I'm saying. Yeah, maybe. I, I see what you're saying. I'm having a hard, like, when I watched the movie, there wasn't much I wanted to change. So I'm sort of, like, hesitant to absorb that but you're right there is for sure a gap there i just think that the way that it's done doesn't ever feel like even though those weren't explicitly in the movie ruby's character doesn't feel like a product of parents who were not fully there for her like even just that scene where the mom comes in like hey I know you're mad at me right now, but I bought a dress for you for your pageant. Like, that's a pretty strong emotional moment for the parent. Mm -hmm. And then that whole 
again, another one that we couldn't clip, but the Ruby's like, do you wish I was deaf? And the mom, instead of just being like, no, that's crazy, she's like, actually, kind of wanted you to be deaf because I thought it would have been easier to connect with you. And when I found out you were hearing, I was afraid that that would put distance between us and make me a bad parent. Yeah, as it did between the mother and her mom. Yeah. And that makes sense. It's just like, but Ruby should not always be the right, like she should not always be in the right because she is a child. She should occasionally be wrong. And uh, unfortunately, she's never wrong in this movie. That's fair. Yeah, she never has like a emotional outburst. But again, like this isn't, Maybe that's for a film with a different tone or different purpose. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. I I was wondering if this movie would have been uh, interesting if it were told from the perspective of the father. You know, it's this like old man in the sea and he's like working a day job on the water and he loves his daughter. And the movie is told almost purely through its cinematography, very minimal audio. Yeah. And and um he's sort of realizing that she's being pulled in multiple different directions in late high school and wondering what's going on with her. So he has many conversations with his wife and he doesn't want to intrude because he wants her to be her own person. And so the coming of age journey happens adjacent to the events of the deaf person. And so the movie becomes then about his battle with the with the fishing company to um, keep more of his profits and to make more of a decent, respectable living. Then the movie would have been called Poke, Parents of Hearing Children. Yeah, yeah, which which could have also worked, you know. But then I was thinking, like, if the movie did that, then it would have had to develop. I guess it would have been a lot like The Quiet Place. It would have been a different movie altogether. It might have been a different movie, but it would be interesting. It would have for sure been a different movie. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, we're like, we're doing a podcast about important representations of disabled people on film. It would be nice if the main character was deaf. See, I kind of disagree because sometimes I think it's, it's almost easier to repre- represent disability when it's not about the main character because it's an easier lens for the community that you're trying to educate to see them through. But there should, we should also trust our audience and we should be able to get to a point where we can be like, no, the story's about a wheelie, like deal with it. I'm sure you can. And we've watched lots of movies like that. Yeah, we have. That's true. But I'm just saying if, if, if an audience can tolerate the, the, the plot um, labyrinths of, you know, Interstellar or Inception, they can fucking deal with a disabled character, like, at the helm. I'm not saying that it would be confusing. I'm just saying, like, I think the varying perspectives are important. We've watched many movies about disability where the disabled person is the main character. And I think we've even commented in those movies how interesting it would be to talk about parenting children as yeah. a disabled person. Right. And this movie does that about as well as I could imagine. It does, yeah. It is it, it's good. I just want to make sure that we do complain because I think out of complaining comes interesting conversation and if we just sit here gushing about the the movie that made us cry twice in the same viewing, 
and maybe four times for you. I don't know, but then it would just seem it would be overwhelming. You know, we want to have a balance of temperament. I don't know, because I think that like complaining is important, but at the same time, when you see a movie and like we don't have to agree, but I <laughs> I definitely saw this movie and was like, this is the type of disability representation I want to see because it for me the disability wasn't the talking point throughout, but it was enough that you couldn't avoid it. Yeah. In not being entirely the focal point of the film, it was actually able to explore disability in a more healthy manner. Because when you make it the focal point, you end up you end up sentimentalizing it and right. there's all kinds of tropes that come with that. And those are annoying and played out. So I do agree with you in that sense. And like I, I'm not saying that a movie about deaf parents through the perspective of the parents that probably would be a great movie. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we have to say that this movie, I don't think we have to complain about this movie because it wasn't that, because it wasn't trying to be that. And I think what it was trying to be... We could call it the old man in the C minor. The big merman. The big merman. Can somebody please wiggle Tony's joystick? I think I upset him. You didn't upset me, but like, I just, I don't think that complaining is always necessary. Well, I think it's fruitful for like fun conversation. But isn't it also fruitful to just talk about what's good? Like what makes a movie good? Just do more of that. Okay, fine. But that's sometimes boring. Roger Ebert's best reviews are those of his zero star and one star films. Yeah, maybe. Just saying. I have a better time not complaining. Well, that's why you're a good person. (laughs) I don't think that's... (laughs) relevant or that contributes to your appeal as a person i don't think that i'm a good person just take the compliment no (laughs) no i don't know i honestly really like this movie i did too maybe because i'm still in the honeymoon period honeymoon period with it where yeah i just watched it twice i cried a bunch i felt cathartic yeah. It felt like therapy. Yeah. You know, like after you leave the therapist's office, yeah. you're like, damn, my life is good. Yeah. I'm going to fix everything. I'm going to improve on these things. I'm going to cut off all these toxic relationships. Uh-huh. And then you get on the bus and you're like, I hate the bus driver. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. I just reminded you of the bus driver. I'm so sorry. You're the bus driver. No, no Tony, I'm so sorry. I'm just kidding. No, no, no. I could never hate you. I don't know. I, I'm still not ready to dislike it because I liked it so much more than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. And I related to it so much more than I thought I would, even though my relationship with deafness is pretty sparse. But I did think of about that while I was watching it is maybe the amount that I like it is the same as some of the movies we've watched that we disliked that most people really liked because I'm not as close to the subject matter as someone else might be. So like think of the sessions or something, right? Uh-huh. We both liked that movie, but we had our gripes with it uh-huh. because it was close to us. But yeah. a person on the outside of that community and without those experiences maybe would be able to watch that movie and just see good in it. 
Yeah. See, like, like potential for a second volume to the Kama Sutra. Yeah. The sessions to butt stuff. Yeah, the sessions to butt stuff. Yeah. Tony and I were thinking of unofficial sequels to popular disabled movies, and that was one of them. Yeah, I do see what you're saying. And your complaints are super valid. I just don't think it's fair to expect this movie to do what it didn't do because it can't do everything. Of course not. Nothing's perfect. And I think what it did do is what it was aiming to do. And I think it did that very well. Oh, yeah. There's a couple breakthroughs in this movie that are sold overwhelmingly well. I can't remember the last time I cried in a movie. Me before you, I actually cried. Yeah. But that was for different reasons. Yeah. I still think we both agree you should go out and watch this movie. Oh, for sure. This is a great film. And you should reach out to us and tell us who you agree with more. Do you agree with Jamie? Do you think that there are some complaints or do you agree with me? Tell us. We want. No, no one's going to disagree with you. Why? Because. People disagree with me. Whatever. I think lots of people like to complain. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's, it is a valuable exercise to point out where something can improve. Is there some place I can improve? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I don't know off the top of my head. I'm putting you on the spot. You can, you can improve where in Ontario you live. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Is there somewhere I can improve? Yeah. You can go out and find someone to wiggle your joystick. It's not like I haven't been, but yeah, you're right. You're right. I should try harder. You need to prioritize that. I do. Instead of using the the other joystick, yeah. you need to get somebody to wiggle the new one, if you know what I mean. Instead of watching sad movies over and over again. <laughs> you try to loop it with your tears. <laughs> <laughs> should we wrap it up there? We should. All right. Good episode, Tony. Good job. Bye, everyone. Take care. Talk soon. Enjoy yourself. Watch Coda. If you want to wiggle Jamie's joystick, send him a message. No, I'm good. <laughs>